Good morning, brothers. I was thinking as we were uh, singing that song, and obviously I'm, I'm the one that chose the hymn, and it, it clearly uh, based off of, off of this passage. And I was thinking as we sang the chorus, uh, how hard that is to do this early in the morning because it goes so high. Uh, but then Jerry Roberts reminded us that in you know, heaven, Robert Sutton is, uh, is going to be maybe leading us, and uh, we're going to be led in the piano, and uh, maybe we'll actually be able to sing that high uh, in heaven, and we won't, my voice won't crack every time I do that. This morning we are uh, in John, 1 John. Remember that uh, we've been in 1 John, and then we, along the ways we take some break to look at a man in his faith and a man in his church, and then last week, David Bowen was speaking in uh, 1 John chapter 4, the, the first verses there, verses 1 through 6, and we're going to be picking up in verse 7. I told you a couple of weeks ago that uh, in my understanding, there's only about you know, three or four good preacher jokes, and, and one of my favorite actually comes from this passage. And I, you know, I've, I've heard it told as an actual story um, but, you know, when you, tell, you hear a pastor tell a story, you're not sure if it's ever actual, because uh, sometimes it sounds too, too fascinating to believe. But the story goes that there was this couple that had gotten married, and a young couple, and they were uh, both Christians, and their parents, both parents were Christians as well, and the parents were just so excited that their son that their daughter had chosen this great Christian guy, this great Christian woman. And, uh, and throughout the uh, engagement and preparation for the marriage, both sets of parents really became good friends with each other. And so uh, going through the whole process leading up to the wedding, the rehearsal, the rehearsal dinner, the reception, uh, these parents were just enjoying their newfound friendship with each other. They were enjoying the fact that their uh, son and daughter were fully uh, committed to the Lord Jesus and that they had found Christian spouses. And in, um, in uh, getting all the excitement around the wedding and all that, the parents decided, you know what, this has been such a blessing to us. What if we did this? What if we as parents together, two sets of parents who love our kids, what if we just sent something down to Jamaica where they're on their honeymoon and just as, a, as, a, as an encouragement to them in the Lord? And so they decided, yeah, that'd be great. And so what they did is they put together this, they said, let's just get this flower arrangement. We'll call uh, on uh, Sunday morning, we'll call you know, the florist down there and we'll get them to put in the hotel room so that when our kids walk in, they'll have this gift from their parents and, oh, it's a great idea. So they went ahead and they called Sunday morning when their kids were flying down to Jamaica, got the florist, and they said, we want this kind of arrangement. And, and they said, you know what, and we, we want this, this is what we want to say on the card. We want to say, uh, you know, love uh, your moms and dads. And then we want, it to, we want you to write out 1 John 4.18. That's what we want written out there. And so here in our, our passage, you see that 1 John 4.18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has, been, has not been perfected in love. What a great thing to start their marriage from mom and dad. 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Sounds like a great plan. Only the florist was not a Christian, didn't know his Bible at all. 
And all the instructions he had gotten were given, had been given were to write out 1 John 4.18. So he goes to his Bible and he starts looking and he comes to the Gospel of John and he figures that's the first John, right? So he writes out John 4.18. So the kids get there, they see the flower arrangement, it's from mom and dad, they're looking at it, they're like, oh, this is great. And they read the card, love mom and dad. And it says there, the truth is you've had five husbands. And the man you are with now is not your husband. <laughs> Love mom and dad. <laughs> Got to know our Bibles, don't we? There is a, uh, there is a, uh, 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 not a fear or a concern of mine that this morning we could miss, we could, I don't think we're going to miss the context, miss by jumping over to the Gospel of John, but we could miss the context of this particular passage here this morning, I think in a couple of ways. I think one of the ways in which we could, we could miss this is that we would not see that this is the high point of this epistle. This is, this is the part, this is the crescendo, this is the place where, where the Apostle John is going. And we could miss that because this is the third time he's talked about loving one another. He talked about it in, in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. He talked about it in chapters 3, beginning at verse 11, going to verse 18. And, uh, and it would be, you're thinking, well, here he goes again. He's just repeating it. No, there, there's something here that's bigger than just what he said the last two times. The other, the other thing I think that the concern we might have this morning, a problem we might have this morning, is just this idea that we're called to love one another. In fact, three times in this passage it says, love one another, and then ends with this, the command is that we need to love our brothers or love our brothers and sisters. And it would be easy for us to go, yeah, yeah, I know I'm supposed to, I know I'm supposed to do that. And, uh, and then maybe to look at the passage and go, and I know I'm supposed to do that because Jesus is my inspiration. You know, God loved me and Jesus died for me, so he's going to inspire me. And then as a result of that, I know I'm supposed to love my brothers and sisters in Christ, so I'm just going to work harder. I'm just going to be better at it. And I think that would miss, the, I don't think, it would miss the passage completely. Because we need to remember the context of 1 John is the issue of assurance. John writes in chapter 5, verse 13, which is the, I love the way John does this. He did this in his gospel. In John chapter 20, verse 35 or 31, John says, I've written these things, I've written this gospel, that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, and that by knowing you might believe and have life in his name. And now, in, the first, uh, in this epistle, he says in chapter 5, verse 13, I write you these things, I write these things to you who believe. So this isn't to unbelievers, he's writing to believers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So the issue is assurance. So as we read these verses... We need to recognize that the issue is not, hey guys, let's try harder and look at Jesus and be inspired. No, there's something bigger there than this because it has to do with this idea of assurance. And he said earlier on, he began the first, uh, in 1 John saying that true uh, obedience will be the evidence and the assurance that you walk with God. So if you have true obedience... In your life, you're, that's going to be evidence that you actually walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then he goes on to say, if you have true belief, then that's going to assure you that you actually belong to God. And now this morning, he's going to say, if you truly love, then you are going to be assured that you belong to God. So now let's read these verses. 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved us, we ought also to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also Love his brother. Well, brothers, let's do some work this morning. And I've put it in the context of two questions here. Because this word love is the, is the, is the Greek word agape. And there are, I think, nine, seven different words for love in the Greek language. And this word agape has to do with sacrificial love. So, so the word of God is calling us or saying that if you're a follower of Christ, you are going to have sacrificial love sacrificial love for others. And so first of all, the first question I posted to us there is, why do we love others? And we see in verses 7 and 8 that it is God's nature. It is God's nature. Love is God's nature. In verse 7, we see letter A there, our love for others is evidence of our new birth. Our love for others is evidence of of our new birth. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God, which immediately makes you think of John 3 16. So John wrote that gospel, and he, he's the one that wrote the, the, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. And, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, Unless you've been born again. And so he says, You've been born here, John is saying, You've been born of God, and the evidence that you've been born of God is that you're going to love one another. And you say, well, wait a second. I know people who have not been born of God who love. 
In fact, we might even say, hey, I know some people. In fact, one of my good friends, I'd say that he's not a believer, but he does an amazing job of loving people around him. In fact, there's several times when I'm convicted personally by the way he loves and the, and the, and the lack of love that might exist in my life. Well, how, how does that happen? How can John say that, uh, that this is evidence that, that, that if you've been born of God, that's where love comes from? Well, we know two things about all of humanity. First of all, we know that every human being on the face of the earth has been created in the image of God. So we all, we all have that stamp, whether or not we have been born again. And then secondly, there's common grace. There's particular grace. Particular grace, the Bible talks about, that's that grace that comes into your life, grabs a hold of you, and makes you born again. But common grace is the fact that God's blessings, some of God's blessings fall, the rain falls on the just and the unjust. Rain is a blessing from God. In fact, all the things that we experience in this life that are good, those things are blessings from God. There is common grace. So common grace in the image of God makes it possible that there's glimpses, there's uh, slight variations of, of what is God's love. But only those who have been born of God can truly love as God is love. Because it's out of his nature. And so our sinful nature is warping that image of God. Our sinful nature is fighting against even common grace. And if God, as, uh, as Jonathan Edwards said in, in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, if God didn't hold back judgment, that our sin would cause everything to fall apart. So if you've been born of God, that's the only way that you can really reflect the love of God. And then it goes on in verse 8, letter B, our love for others is evidence that we know God. Our love for others is evidence that we know God. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now think about this for a second. God is love. And I think, you know, everybody in the world wants to be like, yes, God is love. And then they make the mistake and they go, and love is God. Or as we heard uh, uh, last year at the Academy Awards and some of the other award shows, you heard people get up and as they were saying, they, the big phrase was, love is love is love is love. Let me say this, brothers. The Bible clearly teaches that God is love, but all love is not God. <laughs> and that's the point here. It is God's nature. He gets to define what love is. God gets to define what love is. And so as we love, it flows out of God's nature. And it's evidence that we know God. We don't get to... Love doesn't dictate what God looks like. God dictates what love looks like. Well, that goes on here. Why, why do we love others? First, it's God's nature. Secondly... It is God's demonstration in Christ. It is God's demonstration in Christ. Begins in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. We've been around long enough to have seen how culture addresses the issue of love. The issue of love is addressed as a, as a feeling. It's addressed as something that you can fall in and out of. You know, I, I think I've fallen in love with this girl... You know, I just don't, 
I just don't seem to have love for my wife anymore. And it's this feeling that kind of ebbs and flows, the culture would say. Or it's this general attitude. This general attitude of, well, I just kind of, I just kind of love, I love everyone. And what we mean by that is uh, that, that we're just going to try to be nice. We don't want to get anybody's business, you know. We just have a general attitude of kindness towards everyone. God's love doesn't look like that. God's love always is an action. There's always an action that takes place when it comes to God's love. It's always about, about doing something. And action and belief are always connected. That's one of the great mysteries of uh, probably the last um, hundred years or so in Western culture. This disconnect between belief and action. To be able to say, I believe something and not really have a lifestyle or an action that goes with it really doesn't make sense in any other time in the, in the history of humanity. And frankly, in most cultures around the world, that doesn't make sense. That we could separate belief and action. God never separates that. And we see here it's demonstrated in Christ. He does it in two ways. First of all, um, oh, excuse me. Yeah, two ways. First of all, it was an act of human history. It was an act of human history. God sent His Son into the world so that we might live through Him. God's love was an act of our history. Like we said a couple weeks ago, this Bible is the, is the story, is the redemptive story, or the story of God's redemptive work in history. It's not just a book of religious sayings. God's love was an act of human history. One of my favorite uh, authors, Brennan Manning, in fact, I have a quote from him on the top of the page there. Uh, Brennan Manning tells this story of a friend of his who fought in World War II. And this friend of his who fought in World War II actually made it out because of the sacrificial action of, of his best buddy in the war. They, uh, they became fast friends when they went through training. And they went off to fight in Europe in World War II. And they were in, um, uh, in a battle and a grenade was thrown, and these guys, I mean, these guys deeply, deeply loved each other. A grenade was thrown uh, into um, their foxhole, and there wasn't time to do anything. Uh, in that moment, they kind of froze, and this, this one guy looked at his friend and jumped on the grenade with his body, just covered it. And so this other friend, his life was saved as a result of the sacrificial death of his friend. And years later, this guy had been saved. He went to see his friend's mother, who, who happened to live in, in uh, Brooklyn, New York. And he goes and sees her, and, and uh, you know, they're kind of sharing stories about his son and the, and the, the friendship that they had. And, and, uh, and he's, he's enjoying reminiscing about his friend, and, and this, this, this mother is so happy that He's come to see him and talk about her son who died in the war. And they're showing pictures and telling stories back and forth. And then this guy says to, to the, his friend's mom, you know, the one thing that's just so hard for me is, uh, I mean, I loved him so much. He was my friend. I wonder if he felt the way that I did. I mean, I wonder if he, wonder if he loved me. I wonder if he felt that bond. And the mother, who had been really enjoying this, she gets up from her chair and she's really angry. And she says, how can you say that? 
How can you say that? And the guy was kind of taken back because she had been so kind for over an hour. And then she just started saying over and over again, what more could he have done for you? What more could he have done for you? And Brendan Manning says his friend realized there in that instant how stupid his question was. Did my friend love me? It's applied the same thing to the cross. What I, what I, what I think is amazing about the love of God is that we don't have to sit around wondering if God loves us. Some people say, I just don't, I just don't feel, I just don't feel that God loves me. You don't have to feel it. Because it's a fact of human history. You can point back to a hill outside of Jerusalem that be 2,000 years ago and go, I know God loves me. I know what he's done for me. It's not just a feeling, it's an act of human history. And then, letter B there, it was an act of eternal proportions. It was an act of eternal proportions. Verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. Doing youth ministry uh, for all those years that I, 26 years doing youth ministry, we'd get to uh, some part like this in the Bible. We'd have a word like propitiation. And I'd have students, high school students, say, man, I just wish, I just wish they would use normal words in the Bible. It would be so much easier if they would just you know, use words that I knew what they mean. I don't know what propitiation means. Brothers, we need words like this. In fact, the, the, you think about it, God is communicating to us. He's revealing himself to us, right? God is revealing himself to finite creatures. And the only thing he's got with, he, he's got to use human language. He's got to use our language. God is so much bigger than our language. So let's not shrink our language. We need to actually expand it to understand God. Propitiation is a wonderful word. And it's the right word here. Propitiation is this idea that there is wrath and judgment that is deserved and that God removes the wrath from us and places it on Christ. So there is deserved wrath, and it's removed from us and placed on Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. I love that verse, but that verse really came home to me just a couple of months ago. There's this group that, uh, uh, that's called the Memphis Pastors Christian Network that grew out of a conversation last summer when, uh, when there was that whole conflict between, uh, uh, you know, there's there two, sh two shootings of African Americans by policemen within a matter of a couple of days. And then later that Friday, the shootings that took place in Dallas. And Sandy Wilson called his friend, uh, Rufus Smith, African-American pastor at Hope Press, and said, brother, what do we do? I, 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 what do we need to do? And Rufus said, give me a couple days to think and pray about it, and I'll call you back. And Rufus gathered some of his friends, and Sandy gathered some of his friends from the city pastors, and it kind of formed this group of, of, of pastors, African-American pastors, white pastors from around the city. And they began just to meet and to pray. 
Well, that group has continued on, and, and a couple of months ago, we had a, um, a small conference called Healing Memphis's Wounded Past, and it was about 80 of us, black pastors, white pastors, and we were down at the pyramid, and there's this guy that was coming in to speak to do the conference, and the guy was, and I thought this was weird, right? So we're Memphians, you know, half of us African-American, half of us white, and they got this, this English dude, this white English dude from somewhere outside of London coming to speak to us about healing our racial past. <laughs> and I was thinking, I don't know, how is this going to work, right? Then this guy starts telling his story, and I realize, or he tells us as, as he's talking, he's about 70, 70 years old, that he was, by God's grace, very instrumental. He and his group have spent, had spent years, decades, literally, working through the conflicts that existed in Ireland between Irish Catholics and Irish Protestants and all the terrorism that took place. His team actually had even gone to Rwanda and done, and done healing work between the Hutus and the Tutsis after those massacres that took place in the 90s. So once he said all that, I'm like, okay, cool, I'll listen to you, man. It sounds like you might have something for us. And he said something in the midst of that that spoke right to what we're looking at here, propitiation. And God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. It was very startling. He talked to us and he said, listen, if, we're going to, if you men are going to heal the past of this city, you are going to have to own the sin of this city. And then he said this, not just your sin, but your brother's sin. And I thought, wow. Can he really say that? Can he really say? I can understand how as a white guy, I, yeah, okay, I, I, I can own the sin of my African-American brothers and sisters because I can see my, my, my own, you know, fault in that. But can he really sit here and say to... African-American pastors that they need to own the sin of their white brothers in this city? And then he turned right to, to these, this idea of propitiation. And he said, if we're going to be, if we're going to be Christians, if we're going to follow Christ, we have to follow his example. He says, now obviously we don't pay the sin. We don't pay for the sin, but it's the owning of it. And as I sat there and thought of that tension, I actually began to be filled with emotion about what Christ had done for me. And think about this, what Christ has done for you. And look at that quote that's there from John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. We could probably just spend about 20 minutes in prayer just thanking God for that right now, right? God made him, Christ, take on your sin. Christ didn't just... Go, okay, here's Todd's sin and everybody, all these men, I'm going to take it to the cross as a package. You know what, I'm going to be up there on the cross and I'm like, here, I got this, I got this sin, the sin of the world, the sin of these, these amen men up here. 
It's not what happened. He took our sin and he, and he put it on himself. He owned it as if it were his sin. Think about your sins for a second. Jesus Christ put on your sin. He be, became that. He owned it as his own and he took it on the cross and took on the wrath. That's propitiation. It was an act of enormous, of eternal proportions to do that. That is the love of God. And then he goes on in verse 3, excuse me, in, in number 3, verse 11. Not only is it God's nature, not only is it God's demonstration in Christ, it is God's work in His people. It is God's work in His people. Notice I didn't say it's God's work by His people. It's God's work in His people. And I want to show you this. This is, a, this is one of my favorite parts. Letter A, looking at verse 11. God's love compels us. God's love compels us. You know, in, uh, and I got that from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 13 and, uh, through 15. And in that, Paul says to the Corinthians, Hey, listen, if you think we're crazy because of the way we're bringing you the gospel and all things we're saying, let me just tell you, we're crazy. We're out of our minds for your sake. And then he goes, because the love of Christ compels us, controls us. And John Piper, when he's talking about verse 11 of chapter 4 here, he says, what does that ought mean? If Christ does love us, we ought to love one another. And he says, I know what you're thinking. Oh, you're thinking, okay, Christ has loved us, and so we need to work hard, and we need to go love each other. He says, that's not it. That's not what's being said here. The ought here is, and this, I love, he says this. It's like saying... If you're a fish, you ought to swim. If you're a bird, you ought to fly. <laughs> if you're a human being, you ought to breathe. The ought here is, it's, it's in the context of evidence. So if you're a follower of Christ, it would make sense. It would, it would fit who you are to love one another. The love of Christ isn't just an inspiration like, oh, it's so awesome, I need to do that. It actually is what drives us, it's what controls us, it's what compels us. When you're born again, it becomes loving others is becoming like a fish swimming. You're now taken off of the floppy dock and you're thrown back into the water. And you swim because that's who you are. Brothers, we love because you belong to God. And His love compels us. And then verse 12, letter B, God's love is completed in us. God's love has completed us. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God's love abides in us. And His love is perfected in us. The word perfected, don't let that, that throw you there. The idea of perfected means matured, or develop, or completed, which is why I use the word completed. God's love is completed in us. It's, it's maturing in us. So, big picture question, why do we love? We love because we've been born of God. And then you see the action of God's love in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, that action has freed you to love. 
You're now, you're now free. You're, you're born again has been secured. You can see the love of God. And out of that, you're, the love of God now controls you and it's completing you. It's working in you. That's what's taking place here. That's why, if you're a follower of Christ, you love. Well, second question this morning. How do we love? How can we love others? Picking up in verse 13, Roman numeral 4, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Holy Spirit. This goes back to what it was said in chapter 3, verse 24. He says, you're going to know that you belong to God because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Now I want you to turn in your Bibles over to John chapter 15. And I want us to just look at a couple of verses here that help, help us understand this in a little deeper way. John chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. And remember, John... Uh, Beginning in John 13 through John 17 is what we call the upper room discourse. John in his gospel expands on what took place the night before Jesus was, uh, was uh, crucified. And he expands on the things that Jesus said in the upper room and what he, how he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we get to see these in a, in a bigger way. John chapter 15, look what he says. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples, just verses 1 through 5. I am the true vine... And my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. That's that maturing. That's that perfecting. Already you are clean because of the world, because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, from apart, for apart from me you can do nothing. So the, the Holy Spirit, it's, it's abiding in Christ that gives us the power. We cannot do anything outside of being connected to the vine. And we are the branches. And then about the Holy Spirit, at the very end of chapter 15, Jesus again is still speaking, and he says this in verse 26, but when the Helper comes, and that's the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And so there's two ways in which the Holy Spirit, which dwells in you, is doing a work. First of all, letter A, it empowers you to believe the truth of the gospel. Empowers you to believe the truth of the gospel. You know, you and I are not followers of Christ because we're just smarter than the guys who aren't followers of Jesus. Right? We all know that. It wasn't because I could figure it out and the, my neighbor can't figure it out. So... When you think cognitively, how did I come to know and believe and testify? I know now that the Holy Spirit was doing a regenerating work in my mind. And he was taking the blinders off so that I could see Jesus. And so that's what's taking place. So when I look at my neighbor, I don't look at my neighbor and go, oh, I got to i gotta, I got to get through this knucklehead and figure, i got to figure out how he can understand this. No, I pray, I pray that he, would, that he would have 
a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in his mind so that the Holy Spirit would come in and give him the ability to believe the truth of the gospel. And the fact that I believe the truth of the gospel does not, is not a credit to me. But it's evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in my life. So even going back to the end of chapter 3 when we talked about doubts, we said we struggle with doubts. Well, those doubts are, are if you struggle with a, I wonder, I wonder if God loves me. I wonder. No, you wouldn't even have that question going on in your head if the Holy Spirit hadn't first spoken to you and, and revealed those things to you. And then the second thing the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit empowers us to live in the love of the Father. To live in the love of the Father. So we have come to know and believe that the love of, of, of the love of God that he has for us, God is love and whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So our emotions, right, they challenge us. That's what it said in, uh, in uh, chapter 3, verse 19. It says, whenever your heart accuses you. So your emotions accuse you. Your emotions say, maybe they're saying to you right now, I'm terrible at loving. I'm terrible at this. I can see the love of God and I can't see my, I, I know who I'm struggling to love right now. Maybe I'm not a believer. Maybe there's not evidences in my life. Now it could be the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of times what it is, is, is that you, your, your heart is accusing you. And then what does it say in 1 John chapter 3, verse 20? But God is greater than our hearts. And so the reality here is that God's Spirit is empowering you to understand the love of God. For you to even wrestle with that question is a work of the Spirit inside you. Again, it goes back to, that, to the fish. The fish knows he's supposed to swim. Because <laughs> to swim is to live. For a Christian, to love uh, is to live. Well, then number, Roman numeral 5, the, the last one for us this morning. We are perfected in love. We are perfected in love. Or I would say, we are matured in love. We are matured in love. I love this contrast that I put there. I'm just going to give you both of them. So letter A is we do not fear. And letter B is we love. Because this contrast is, is amazing. Jerry Roberts said it this morning, right before he, he or in his prayer, that in today's culture right now, today's culture right now, we see a lot of people afraid and not a lot of people loving. And so people are responding in all over the place with fear and not with love. But here it says, when we're matured in, in, our, in our relationship with Christ, we're matured in love, we do not fear and we love. You'd say, wait, 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 Todd, we're taught to fear God. Now it's saying we don't fear God. I told you a couple weeks ago about my dad and his service for the church. Uh, my dad, if you saw him right now, you'd, you'd wonder why I ever have any fear of my dad. Uh, my dad is not even quite my height. Um, I don't know that he's ever weighed more than 160 pounds. Um, and, uh, you know, he's, a, he's always been this super, super fit guy. Um, but... You know, you guys know there's dad strength, right? There's, that, there's the intimidation factor of dad, and then there's just the ability of dad to take you out anytime he wants to, right? <laughs> so I had a healthy fear or awe of my dad. 
And this was never displayed more than if I were to, uh, when I was in high school, I had a curfew of 11 o'clock, and it was not, 11.05 was not acceptable. 11.02 was not acceptable. 11. And I always knew whether or not uh, I, I had made it at the acceptable time, you know, because sometimes back then you, we didn't have cell phones, right? So you're hoping you synced up your watch correctly with Dad's watch. And uh, my dad apparently was on, you know, Greenwich Mean Time because he knew exactly what it was, right? And I knew if the, uh, if the living room lights were on, I was good. I was good, right? If the living room lights were off, it was going to be a scary moment. And it was scary because not only the living room lights were off, if the living room lights were on, my dad was in bed probably, and it was like, welcome home. The living room lights were off. My dad was in the living room in the dark on the couch (laughs) waiting for me. I knew that, right? So I come home, and the living room lights are off. My heart started to beat a little faster, right? I had fear. Why? Because I had an awe of my dad. But you know what else? I was absolutely sure that this man loved me. So though I had an awe of what that moment was going to be like when I walked in the living room, I never once, when the lights were off, just go, you know what, I'm not going home tonight. (laughs) I didn't keep driving. I went to the door and I opened it up and I walked in. Because I, I was sure of his love for me. Brothers, we need to have a, a, an, an awe of God. We need to, there needs to be a sense, particularly when we sin, of, 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 of realizing the, the immensity of, of, of that affront to God. But what's being said here in this passage by John is, we do not fear a judgment from God. We do not fear being put off. We are not going to be sent away as sons. My dad never locked the door and never put a sign out there and says, you're no longer a son. No, there was discipline, but the point of the discipline was to bring me back into the family, to to make me more his son. And so for us brothers, we do not fear our heavenly father. We don't need to fear when we go to him in prayer. Hebrews chapter 4 says, we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who has opened the door for us. And so we boldly walk in and we ask God. We don't fear. And we don't fear the judgment. We don't fear dying and facing God. We do not fear his return. Why? Because of what Christ has done for us. When we understand the love of God demonstrated in Christ, we do not have to fear anymore. We have confidence in the judgment. So when, when, if Christ came back today, if you've given your life to Christ, you do not def- need to fear anything. You can walk up. Your, your name is written in the book of life. And you don't need to have any... You need to say, well, what, am I, you know, what would I say? You're going to say... Hey, I got nothing <laughs> except Jesus. You're not going to say, I went to Amen for 22 years. You're not going to say, I memorized this scripture, I serve in my church. That stuff means nothing when it comes to the judgment. The only thing 
is to walk up and say, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for me that I might become the righteousness of God. So we do not fear, but what does it say next? We love. We love because he first loved us. So we do not fear, we love. And there he goes, he, he draws a connection between our love of God and our, and our love of people. And he basically says, you cannot, you cannot separate that. Jesus said this in Matthew. Remember when, when, he, when he spoke, Matthew said, hey, when the judgment comes, I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats. And I'm going to say to the, to the sheep, I guess the sheep are on the right. So you're going to say to the sheep, listen, whenever, uh, when you saw me when I was hungry and fed me, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And uh, when, you, when I was naked, you clothed me. When I was in prison, you visited me. So you welcome me to my kingdom. And they say, when do we see you like that? And he said, whenever you did it to the least of me, these, you were doing it unto me. And then he says to the, to the goats on his left, listen, you're going to go away to eternal punishment because when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. When I was clothed, when I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When I was sick and in prison, you did not visit me. And they're going to say, what are you talking about, Jesus? If we had seen you by the side of the road... We would have stopped and given you some money. We'd have figured something out. We'd have taken care of you if we knew you'd lived in our city. And Jesus says, when you, whatever you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. Jesus was saying, you cannot separate the love for me and the love for others. You cannot do that. And brothers, as followers of Christ, what this is saying is, as followers of Christ, we do not fear, we love now, I could use a ton of examples from our culture right now, but I'm going to close with an example uh, from years ago, from decades ago. And for those of you who are younger and actually were born in the 80s, I'm sorry, you're just going to have to roll with me on this. For those of us that lived in the 80s, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. There was this movie that came out a few years ago, got Academy Award nominations. The movie was called Dallas Buyers Club. And it was the story of the... Uh, homosexual uh, society culture in the late 80s who was being, that was being ravished by the AIDS epidemic. And there were, no, there were no drugs available at that time. The FDA hadn't proved anything. Nobody knew anything about it, but there were these other drugs from other countries that seemed to work. And so Dallas Buyers Club was this idea, was this story of uh, getting a hold of these drugs illegally and bringing them in and hopefully prolonging the life of these homosexual men who were struggling with AIDS. And as I was watching that movie with my wife a couple of years ago, at one point, I, I felt myself getting overwhelmed with emotion, and I just, I just paused it. And for, for about 30 minutes, Lynn and I just talked. And I said, you know what is tearing me up right now, Lynn? Is that we as a church missed it at the end of the 80s. Because I'm looking, I remember, I was, I remember... I remember that that culture, that group, nobody, they, they were ostracized by everyone. Nobody cared for them. I'm not just talking about the church. I'm just saying all of society in the United States rejected them, wanted to, they were like lepers, like everybody get away from them. And it's like everybody forgot that they were human. That they were men who... Maybe they didn't know Christ yet, but they had been stamped with the image of God. And I thought, 
we missed it. The church missed it. Because in that moment, if the church could have stepped in and loved and cared for those men who were struggling, visited them in the hospital, just visited them in the hospital. I'm not saying condoning the sin. I'm not saying accepting the sin at all. I'm just saying caring for dying men without any hope. Then I'll tell you, there would have been a different, there would have a different mindset in America regarding the church and some of these cultural sins. If we had done that, we missed it. We missed it. And I told Lynn, I said, I don't want to miss it in my lifetime. I just want to pay attention as the church to my culture right now. And I don't want to miss loving people. Again, I'm not, brothers, I'm not talking about condoning sin that's clearly spoken against the Bible. I'm talking about loving human beings who are suffering. And maybe it's, maybe it's, Maybe there's something for us in the, in the worst refugee humanitarian crisis in the, in, in the history, probably the history of the world. Maybe there's something for us that, in that. That we as a church wouldn't, wouldn't miss that because we do not fear. We love. And why do we love? We love because it's God's nature. We love because it's been demonstrated in Christ and we're free. How can we love? We're empowered by the Spirit and we have no fear. And so we ought to love, not ought to love like, hey, go try harder today. But ought to love like a fish ought to swim, like a bird ought to fly, like you ought to breathe. (laughs) It'll be God's work in you that does this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is beautiful. It is true. It is relevant. We don't have to make it so. Lord, it applies to our life every day. So thank you for this opportunity to sit with these men and to sink deep into your word, to feast on it. Lord, sink these words deep into our hearts. Remind us again how deeply we are loved. May your spirit empower us to live in the love of God, to abide in you. And Father, may we love today as you have loved us, because you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.